talk about this kind of practice as a practice of homecoming. I've been saying to people, make yourself at home. Come home to who you really are. <coughs> Especially if you're new and you haven't done formal practice, I'll tell you that you can practice with your eyes open or closed, sitting clearly in any way that works for you. Some people on the floor, some people in chairs. With your body comfortable and alert. Take a minute just to feel yourself here. Eyes open or eyes closed, you can feel your body tingling or vibrating, doing any of the numbers of things that it does to let you know it's alive. Feel how it's breathed moment to moment without, if our breathing system is not compromised in some way, moment to moment without any effort of our own. The whole of the biosphere gives us the gift of another breath. And then we give it the gift back. The carbon dioxide that will feed all the greenery. I think about that a lot about the green growing things of the world and we giving each other artificial respiration. For this period of time that we sit tonight, think of yourself as giving yourself a gift. It's a sabbatical from all of the thoughts of what went on today, or in fact, what went on ever, already finished. And what didn't happen yet? It's not happening yet. Give yourself the gift of this moment, uncomplicated. You probably noticed that As soon as I directed your attention to your body, you felt it more. Perhaps that can be where your attention rests, just in your body. In the whole of your body being breathed, breath after breath. Or in the part of your body where you most feel the breath, your ribcage or in your belly. Maybe even around your nostrils as the breath comes in and out. Breath after breath. And your attention can just rest on it. Float with each breath. Follow it in and out. You'll notice that its pattern is fairly regular. The very regularity and predictability of the breath that really serves immediately to calm the mind. You don't need to do anything.
It is wonderful to feel that one doesn't need to do anything. The feeling of not needing is a feeling of freedom. Don't need to do anything. Everything happens just of itself. You can rest your awareness in the sensation just of being alive. Think of this period of time as a gift to yourself, as a sabbatical. To support your gift, give away any thought that arises in your mind that might captivate or distract your attention. Even if the thought seems important, you don't need it. If it's important, it will come back later. Let it go. You might want to open your hands. Sometimes when I think about cultivating that particular quality, being able to let go, I turn my hands uncharacteristically up to remind myself that I don't need to hold on, that I can let go. So whether your hands are in your lap or on your thighs, you might turn them up. And there's something about that uh, mudra of the hand, that configuration of the hand, that reminds me that I have enough. So in this body posture of I am at ease, I have enough this moment sufficient unto itself, resting moment to moment in the shifting sensations of the body and the breath, we'll just sit. So I had a whole thing prepared that I was going to start with, and I realized again that uh, it's not worthless for me to prepare. It's actually, I think, worthwhile. It causes me to think about what I might do. It rarely comes to pass that I actually do it that way, but at least I've been making that preparation. So I changed my whole mind about what I was going to talk about, um, or at least how I wanted to talk about it. What I was going to talk about thinking about the fact that Jack and I are rarely here together, and it's so lovely to be doing that. I look forward to it a lot. That um, I was going to talk about lineage, 
and uh, what it's like to have a teacher that you love a lot who becomes a colleague of yours. So I am talking about that. And um, I was going to talk about teaching as an act of generosity on the part of the Buddha. And I was going to tell the original story of uh, the time after the Buddha's uh, enlightenment, immediately after, when he is said to have hesitated about whether or not he would go out and try to teach what he knew and really was concerned about the vastness of suffering in the world and his realization either through an internal image or the visitation of some divine being that uh, the message, that the, the, the wisdom that he had was precious and that for those with little dust, for the benefit of those who are almost ready to see, he should uh, go forth and teach. It's wonderful to think about that being the beginning of a chain of lineage of people teaching each other by stories for 500 years at least, just by stories without writing down. And now, and then beginning to write it down, and here we are now, 2,000 years after the beginning of the writing down, still writing down more stories to tell each other about it. That's what I was going to do. What I realized when I sat here is that what was more really uh, more immediate to me was how extraordinary it is to look out at all of you and realize that this is a confession that I want to make. I'll tell you something. The very first time I, uh, quite, maybe not the very, very first moment that I sat down at a retreat, because Jack was one of my teachers at my very first retreat. I am very gifted to have had him as my principal teacher for a lot of these... uh, 1977 to now, 25 years. So, um, um, so here's the confession part. If not on the very first retreat or the very first day of the very first retreat, sometime quite soon, early on, sitting in the very back of a meditation hall, seeing my teachers up in front, and knowing that they were all, um, in many ways, they not exactly contemporaries of mine, most of them, a decade younger than I, in a different place in life, but having the clear sense that they knew something that I needed to know and that I couldn't quite... I knew I didn't understand and I certainly knew I didn't have any even understanding of what I was supposed to do about working with the mind, let alone be able to do it. But I had the clear awareness came up, I'm going to do that someday. I will be up there someday. I knew it. And I would never have said that because it would have been such enormous hubris. I was way too embarrassed to let anybody know know that. But I knew it. And I just recently had the experience of talking to my friend Tamara Engel, who is a mindfulness teacher in New York. And you may know Tamara. Uh, She's one of the uh, founders of New York Insight. And she said, Uh, that she began her practice, her retreat practice, not knowing anything about Dharma, nothing at all, and talking to someone who had come home from a retreat who was telling her about her experience on retreat. And she said, I listened to my friend talking to me, and my mouth watered. And uh, I think that's what happens when we connect with the possibility. We connect with what we know is true. Someone says something, and we don't get it, but we get it. Somehow our viscera gets it, way before our intellect gets it. And we know that that's true. 
And our body reacts to it. We salivate. But the idea of a... Is that gross, that salivate? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's charming. <laughs> Should I be embarrassed? <laughs> Not in the slightest. <laughs> All right, now it's, I'm going to read. It's like, it's like a line from Rumi, you know, that longing for the taste of the divine. There you are. Ruby did it better though. (laughs) 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 This is a little piece of how this sounds. Um, This is called Contemporary Practice. The reason I decided to read this and not what I had in mind to read is I looked out and I thought this is what contemporary practice looks like. This looks like 300 people, Westerners in California, sitting quietly, practicing what the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago. Accounts of the Buddha's life said, to have been, life said to have been told by generations of disciples before they were written down and codified as scripture often begin with the words, thus I have heard, which carry the sense of oral tradition into the present. The teacher to student, elder to novice tone of the narratives invites us into the centuries-old community of storytellers who made the Buddhist practice their own practice. We are in the line of people who heard the story. The sermon called Setting into Motion the Wheel of Truth is the account of the Buddha's first formal teaching after he declared his enlightenment, his experience of deeply understanding both the cause of and the remedy for suffering. It includes, before the Buddha's statement of the Four Noble Truths as the summary of his insight, <clears throat> the fact that he gave this teaching to five monks he met walking near Benares. A story told about that encounter describes how the five monks, recognizing the Buddha from afar as the person who had formerly done ascetic practice with them, said disparaging things to each other about him. One, as one account has it, they agreed among themselves, here comes the monk Gautama, who became self-indulgent, gave up the struggle, and reverted to luxury and only reluctantly agreed to listen to him. That same account describes how, at the end of the Buddha's teaching, as one after another of the monks understood the truth of what he had said, the news traveled right up to the Brahma world, and this 10,000-fold world element shook and quaked and trembled while a great measureless light surpassing the splendor of the gods appeared in the world. The stories my friends and I tell each other about our first experience of hearing the Four Noble Truths for the first time resemble, though in 21st century English language idiom, the account of what happened in Benares. My view that I was stuck with my worrying, fearful, awful, often sorrowful mind, the victim of whatever events my life had in store for me, indeed shook and quaked at the news that a liberated mind, a mind at ease in wisdom and filled with compassion, was a possibility. Long before I had any confidence that I would be able to see clearly, it was thrilling to know that it was possible for human beings, like the Buddha who was a human being, to become, through practice, free of suffering. You want to read a little bit? Want to say a little bit? Sure. I was in the next part of Four Noble Truths. Say something about Well, say something about whatever you like. (laughs) 
as my teenage daughter would say, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it is a pleasure, Sylvia. Yeah. We, have such a we have a good time. We have for a long time. It's very, very sweet, actually. It's so easy. Um, I was on the phone today uh, speaking with uh, a, a very fine uh, woman who is the um, who is in charge of organizing the visit of His Holiness the Dalai Lama back to New York City um, in September, a year from now, um, which will include some days of um, teachings to 30 or 40,000 people, and then a pre-open day in Central Park, as he'd had some years ago, for somewhere between a quarter and a half a million people, um, which she's feeling that New York could use um, with everything that's happened. Um, and then some days of working with a group of us as Buddhist teachers, and I'm so involved in, in some parts of that. But the part that I was particularly talking to her about is that um, I've gotten involved in helping to arrange for the Dalai Lama to do some teachings for people who are in prison. Because, as we talked about, those of you who come more regularly, there are at the moment six and a half million American people either in our prisons or on parole, in our, more than any other, quote, civilized country in the world. Um, you know what Gandhi said when they asked him what he thought of Western civilization, and he said, yes, it would be a good idea, wouldn't it? <laughs> but anyway. Um, and in writing this proposal both to the New York State prison system that I was working on and to the, to the Dalai Lama, um, part of what I asked him to do um, was to bring a number of the old monks and nuns who'd spent 20 or 30 years in prison and been tortured in Tibet and escaped or gotten out, um, and to talk to the people in prison and to make a video that could go out and blessings and blessing cords and things that they could keep with them. Um, and to talk about, first of all, redemption, the beautiful Tibetan story of Milarepa, who was a, um, after terrible things happened to his family, he took revenge and who was a killer of many, many people. And then he redeemed himself and became one of the great saints and sages of Tibetan history. Um, to tell the story of how that's been told from from one mouth to another ear for 1,500 years in the Himalayas of how any human being, no matter what we've done, and we've all done things in some fashion or other, also has the possibility of finding freedom, of redeeming, of, of, uh, of transforming the heart, that this is also a human possibility. And then to speak, as he does, about what freedom really means, um, uh, and to give some teachings, he and these others, that would really be useful for those in those circumstances. So in working on this book, The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness and Peace, in a way it's like a long guided meditation or a long poem for me with a number of passages and then 12 practices, practices of forgiveness and compassion and reconciliation and uh, letting go and uh, compassion. Um, uh, um, um, mind like space and mind like a mirror, various practices. Um, but I started it with the hope that it would be in some ways either a little reminder or maybe a gift book that someone would give somebody else who was in difficulty. Um, and the reminder 
is really what we know in ourselves, what I teacher, it's what my teacher Ajahn Chah called within us the one who knows, that it speaks to the place of wisdom that is your birthright. Oh, oh nobly born, certain Buddhist texts begin, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, do not forget the possibility of mercy and redemption, and more than that, do not forget the possibility of liberation. So it begins, you hold in your hand an invitation to remember the transforming power of forgiveness and loving-kindness, to remember that no matter where you are and what you face, within your heart peace is possible. The teachings in this book contain age-old understandings about love. This wisdom is essential for any who live in our modern times. The words of the Buddha offer this first truth. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And every time I say those words, I picture my teacher, Gosananda, the, the Gandhi of Cambodia, leading peace marches through the worst fighting in Cambodia, chanting this phrase over and over with a whole long stream of hundreds of people behind him, even when they were shot at or grenades thrown at them. Often we too, not just the Cambodians, find ourselves in conflict that unsettle our peace of mind. We face difficult situations and our problems can feel insurmountable. Pain, anger, fear can arise in ourselves, in families, in business, in communities, and between nations. We would like to find a way out of the suffering. Even in the worst situations, the heart can be free. Viktor Frankl writes, we who lived in the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from us but the last of human freedoms, the freedom to choose our spirit in any circumstance. Forgiveness and compassion are not sentimental or weak. They demand courage and integrity, yet they alone can bring about the peace we long for. As Meher Baba says, true love is not for the faint-hearted. Our innate wisdom knows this is true. When the Buddhist texts address us, O nobly born, they remind us that we are sons and daughters of the Buddha. Do not doubt your own basic goodness, in spite of all confusion and fear, that which is called the small sense of self, the body of fear. You are born with a heart that knows what is just, loving, and beautiful. If we look at ourselves truthfully, we can feel the possibility of being more compassionate, more awake, more free. If it were not possible to free the heart from entanglement in greed, in hatred, and fear, I would not teach you to do so, says the Buddha. How can we begin? It must be done now. In this moment, in any moment, we can begin to let go of hatred and confusion and fear. We can rest in that peace of heart 
and love and forgiveness that is available to every human being. It is never too late. And yet it is not enough to know that forgiveness and love are possible. We must find ways to embody them in our life. The truth is, says Nelson Mandela, we are not yet free. We have merely achieved the freedom to be free. So then, through the rest of the book, are a series of both teachings and practices, more than anything, the practices of the heart, to remind us that we can step out of the small sense of self, the body of fear, and reconnect with that, the deepest values of our heart, and say, yes, I will live from that truth, I will live from that reality. This week, I had already, or this last week, I will say, two or three or four different situations, folks in crisis, one person who was very gravely ill, and maybe near dying, somebody else in a great deal of conflict with others in their life, um, somebody else with a great loss, looking for reconciliation, forgiveness, finding a way to let go and find peace. And the most beautiful teachings are simply the reminder to the one who knows in you this is possible, even in this circumstance. It is possible to live from the heart of generosity, of ease, of integrity, and that we can, by taking time to sit and listen to what we most deeply value, we can live that reality. I thought probably I'm swallowing because I'm so moved. <clears throat> I haven't taken the lump out of my throat. I think probably I want to tell a story about um, the practice of loving kindness. Uh, this I've divided this book into uh, ten different aspects of kindness, the ten paramitas, the ten perfections of the heart. And in each case, there's a meditation to do, just as we did the generosity one, and a meditation to do generosity as a medita- uh, a pract- instructions for generosity as a meditation, instructions for generosity in life, instructions for each of them as a meditation, and instructions for implementing each one in life. And I was motivated to, um, in response to what Jack said, especially starting with the quote from the Dhammapada, that hatred not ending from hatred, to read from the loving-kindness chapter. Particularly, I wanted to say how long it takes sometimes to heal the heart, but that healing is possible. In August of 2001, I woke up to hear the news that a Palestinian suicide bomber had blown himself up in a pizza restaurant in the middle of Jerusalem during the lunchtime rush, killing 13 people, many of them infants. I felt tremendous despair. I remember being on the phone several months before on Yom HaShoah, this is the Holocaust Remembrance Day, with my friend Ruth, the rabbi who was spending her sabbatical year in Israel. And Ruth said, it's tremendously weird, completely weird. I'm sitting here in my apartment watching a hope-filled ceremony being broadcast live from Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. And at the same time, I can hear Israeli mortar shells screeching by overhead aimed at Palestinian targets. I'm in terrible pain. And she said, I can't figure it out. How will it end? How will it ever end? 
Most commentary that I read about the situation in the Middle East or the situation in any conflict-plagued place in the world seems focused on what mistakes were made, who made the mistakes, who was originally to blame, as if there were a single point of origin before which there were no troubles. Even if it were ever possible to know the answer to the question, who started this fight, it would not solve the question of needing to know what should we do now. All the great spiritual traditions teach that the enemy needs to be befriended, that retaliation is endless. In the Dhammapada, the compilation of the teachings of the Buddha, it says hatred never ends, ceases by hatred. Only love will erase hatred. This is the eternal law. Befriending one's enemy, though, however crucial it is to ending hatred and conflict, to reclaiming our own heart's ability to love, is counterintuitive. Befriending requires forgiving, and we are often too frightened to forgive. There must be a mechanism deeply embedded in our brain that keeps the memory of past pain sharply alive in order to protect us from having it happen again. We remember who frightened us in our lifetimes, and very likely through stories, through the gene pool, through racial memory, who frightened our parents and their parents in their lifetimes. Because feeling guilty is frightening, we also remember when we felt ashamed, when we felt ashamed of ourselves because of what we did or what our kin did. We remember our fear in ourselves, alerted by adrenaline long before our mind and our heart get a chance to think. For forgiveness to happen, for our natural inclination to loving kindness to emerge, we need to stop frightening each other. We need to feel safe. Gustave was my study partner at a, month, a month-long intensive Hebrew language course in Natanya in Israel in 1995, and he invited me to come home with him for a two-day Sabbath school break. Gustave is German. He and his wife belong to a religious German Christian community that had, after World War II, developed programs in Israel to serve Holocaust survivors. Gustave is the director of a home for elderly survivors who have no relatives. In conversation class, he would explain, in careful, competent Hebrew, how both the work that he did and his intention to continue to live in Israel were the motivation for his language studies. The drive to the old age home took several hours. We stopped on the way in Haifa in front of a small apartment complex. There's a woman who lives here that I visit every week, Gustav said. She'll need to move to the house soon, but she isn't quite home soon, but she isn't quite ready. Please wait here for me in the car. I can't take you in with me. Strangers are hard for her. Alone in the car, I thought about the woman in the apartment and about how I, a Jewish woman, was more of a stranger to her than her young German visitor. 45 minutes later, Gustav was back. I'm really worried about her, he said. She doesn't see well, and her balance isn't good. It's hard for her to grow, give up the apartment, though. It's so familiar. But I know she looks forward to my visits. I think that when she does move, it will be easier for her because she knows me. It was middle of the afternoon when we finished the drive. The dining room, as we passed it on the way to my room, was empty. The tables, covered with white cloths, were arranged in a large U-shape with chairs on all sides. I knew that eight German adults, some like Gustav, part of families with children, lived in the building with ten elderly Jews. We would all eat together. Gustav told me that the coordinator of his religious community's many projects in Israel, a man who lived in Jerusalem, had been invited for the weekend, and that a rabbi from Tel Aviv 
who would conduct Sabbath services the next morning, was also expected. Gustav showed me the shelf at the side of the dining room, already set with candlesticks and candles to be lit just before sunset. If you didn't bring your own, Gustav said, we have extra. When I returned to the dining room an hour later, people were gathering at the tables. Some of the candles had been lit. I lit mine. Gustav was playing the guitar softly, a traditional chant for welcoming the Sabbath. Welcome, angels of peace. He nodded for me to take the empty chair near his, and I sat down. I saw that the seats had been designated so that the whole community was mingled together, young German, old Jew, all around the table. Every man in the room was wearing a yarmulke, traditional head covering. And I realized as I looked around the table that all, everyone, other than the three weekend visitors, lived in the building we had all dressed for the occasion. A very old man at the far end of the table from me stood up to say the ritual blessing over the wine. He'd been sitting in a wheelchair and needed to be supported by the people on either side of him. His hand shook as he held the glass. His voice was low, barely audible. When he finished, he took a sip of the wine and sat back down. I looked around the room. I saw young Germans, all of them born decades after World War II, and old Jews trusting the last part of their now enfeebled lives to them. I thought about the mysterious path of forgiveness and about how, without erasing, we can sometimes mend a story by writing more at the end of it. I thought about how long it might take to do the writing. People began to pick up their wine glasses. Across the table from me, the program coordinator from Jerusalem raised his glass to acknowledge the old woman sitting next to me. Shabbat Shalom. I wish you Sabbath peace, he said. The old woman raised her glass in response. Shabbat shalom. Mm. From the Bhagavad Gita. If you want to see the heroic, look at those who can love in return for hatred. If you want to see the brave, Look for those who can forgive.